0: This is the Scott
1: Thompson Show podcast. Uh, U.S. officials are saying that Hurricane Harvey is still a very dangerous and historic storm. Uh, how much damage has been done so far? And uh, could there be more? Joining us on the line to talk about it is Dale Eck. He's a leader of forecast operations with the Weather Company. We've reached him in Georgia today. Uh, Dale, thanks for being on the program sure thing jamie good to talk to you Yeah. so uh... this has been uh... well tropical storm harvey i su- I, I guess we should get the the uh... terminology correct uh... paralyzed houston um, give us an idea of of where that storm is at right now in terms of its ferocity
0: yeah actually um... as you said it is now a tropical storm because it's been over land since friday night so these systems just they lose their fuel source which is the warm ocean waters uh, and they'll tend to spin down. Now that doesn't take away from the fact that it, while it did come on shore with winds of 130 miles an hour uh, down near uh, Corpus Christi and it's all the winds are winding down. The big story now is the uh, m- catastrophic amount of rain that's coming from the system. Houston metro area has been clocked with this. We're talking 24 to uh, as high as 40 inches of rain so far. Uh, The system has just can't come to a stall. We expect it to start to move. The heaviest rain, heavy rains are now starting to spread into Louisiana, and I think we're looking at a widespread area of anywhere between 10 and 40 and perhaps 50 inches of rain from this thing, which is uh, happening in low-lying areas. Uh, All the rivers and estuaries and streams in the region of East Central and Northeast Texas are out of their banks. And uh, it's just a, a terrible situation for the people in the south-central U.S.
1: Now, it's going to sound weird, me saying this, but fortunately, only two deaths blamed on the storm. I mean, it's, it's terrible when anybody loses their life, uh, you know, in a, in a weather event. Um, but, you know, it could have been a lot worse, I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think, unfortunately, the story's not uh, completely over yet. Like I said, we've got these tremendous amounts of rain, and the waters are rising in the rivers, and, you know, some people that said, Woo, after seeing how much flooding they might have gotten Saturday, boy, I'm okay, and now all of a sudden they're in trouble. So there's there's still a lot of time to go. I, I hate to say it, but, you know, um, I think I had heard something like 30 still missing. Uh so it, you know that could creep up but I do think it was I think it was well advertised the problem is there wasn't a lot of lead time this thing just cranked uh during the day on Thursday going from a low-end tropical storm up to a mid-level hurricane so I think you know people were like okay tropical storm I'll wait and see if it gets stronger and it got stronger in a hurry and I think it caught a lot of people who may have normally said oh there's a hurricane coming I'm leaving they're like. Uh, by the time that
1: became evident, um, there wasn't time to. Dale Eck is my guest uh, with the weather company. We've reached him in uh, in the state of Georgia uh, today. Um, Dale, I, the first thing I thought when I heard um, about Hurricane Harvey um, on Thursday was, "My goodness, it's only you know the twenty something of August here," and I know we're getting close to. Into hurricane season, but I typically don't think of hurricane season until we're well into September. Does this um, uh, bode uh, dangerous for a hurricane season that you know could be a little rougher because this one seems a little earlier? Am I off base here?
0: Uh, it, it's not really early. Uh, what we tend to they actually the official hurricane season starts on June one. Having said that, as you noted, there's typically not a lot of activity through at least mid uh, early August. But as we go through the month of August, that's where we start transitioning. You know, the curve is really starting to go up for the number of systems that are named starting in mid-August until you hit your peak. In mid-september and then you see the same curve coming back the other way so while it's a little early in terms of the peak of the season you're, we're definitely in the heart of the season and um, you know this is not unprecedented in terms of how early it was etc but obviously it's going to be unprecedented for the volume of rain and water and flooding that we're going to see
1: from the system is the science of or the the business of um, uh, predicting uh, pathways for tropical storms and hurricanes. Has is, is, is technology helped you guys uh, get, get even better at, at doing that? I mean, you do a pretty good job as it is. Um, give us an idea of, of where the technology of forecasting these types of things is at today.
0: Yeah, actually the science of forecasting the track of these systems has actually come a long way. We the errors going out to 3, 4 and 5 days have really diminished in the last 15 to 20 years. One of the biggest challenges we have is forecasting the intensity of these systems so for instance this system as it came off the yucatan and was just entering the gulf of mexico it had been harvey in the caribbean it was downgraded you know we felt pretty strongly it would at least it would become a tropical storm before it hit land it was not obvious that it would become a category three and category four hurricane a strong hurricane by the time it hit land That's the area where we knew there was potential for strengthening but it had limited time till it was going to hit land and it's just these uh, uh, rapid intensification systems that can catch citizens off-guard and even the forecasters
1: right and how common are are hurricanes uh, blowing uh, over the Gulf and, and going that direction as opposed to coming in off the Atlantic
0: well, it's actually what you've got is as, as systems typically, they originate off the coast of Africa as tropical waves, and they move westward. And the issue is, as they are approaching the latitude of the United States, that's where they, there's a lot of uncertainty in how they will interact with the westerlies that blow across North America. And that's what tends to catch these. And a lot of them get caught by these westerlies before they get to the U.S., and they get turned northeast and out to sea but um, sometimes uh, the reason it can sometimes be tricky is in order for a tropical system to intensify and gain strength, it has to be in a region where the jet stream winds are very light. If there's jet stream winds, it shears it off. They cannot develop. So you've got this system that's grown in an environment that has very little steering currents, and it gets tricky then when and if and how this eventually meets up with some mid-latitude steering currents. So there's two ways that they tend to go. They either go west and stay under those steering currents, which this one did, or they get a little bit farther north and the steering currents will pick them up and turn them out into the
1: North Atlantic. The, um, the prevalence of other uh, systems out there in the ocean somewhere it would be what today? I guess, you know, when, when one of these pops up, I'm imagining one of the first things you guys do is go looking for other ones or other seeds of of storms popping up. Is there anything uh, quote unquote, on your radar screen to indicate that there's uh, something else out there right now?
0: Yeah actually, actually there is. There's a there's what was once a tropical wave that kind of meandered. Slowly west, never really intensified because it was under a lot of uh, some of those jet stream winds, so it couldn't develop. It meandered over Florida. It's now meandering just off the Georgia coast, not too far from us. Uh, And it looks like that system has a small window to maybe become a low-end tropical storm and brush the Carolina coast, maybe just glance Cape Cod before heading out to sea. Probably not going to be a big deal. But what we're already seeing is there. There's another wave coming off the African coast, and there is nothing in its way to prevent it from intensifying. Oh boy! So then, it ultimately what it comes down to is. Where does it go? It's going to head in the general direction of the southeastern U.S., and we're going to have a trough coming into the eastern U.S. So where those two meet up in, say, 10 to 12 days, will tell if we're going to have another one here in the United States. We're going to have to watch that one really closely. I think the good news, though, is we think it's going to not threaten the U.S., until after the Labor Day weekend. So at least that's uh, hopefully we'll all get a breather, enjoy our Labor Day weekend before we could potentially have to deal with another tropical system, either storm or hurricane.
1: All right, Dale Eck, uh, leader of forecast operations uh, for the Americas at the Weather Company in the United States. Uh, We reached you in Georgia today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and giving us a bit of an education here. I do appreciate it. Sure thing, Jamie. You have a good day. All the best. Bye for now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the hot real estate markets uh, around the GTA. Toronto, uh, a lot of experts have said, has, has peaked. Uh, price acceleration is stopping there. We're starting to see, I think, some of that occurring in the Hamilton market as well. Things are, are slowing down a little bit. I mean, you've got to put things in perspective. It's a market that was absolutely on fire, and now it's now it's cooling off a, a little bit. But it's still a a, a pretty active uh, market. So houses that are listed maybe aren't selling in a day uh, like they used to, but uh, you know they're selling within weeks, um, which you know used to be kind of <laughs> the normal thing. Uh, there's this new trend as well uh, among real estate investors renting. A place in the city while owning a home in a small town financially. How is this feasible? What repercussions uh, uh, can there be from this? Joining us on the line is uh, one of our money experts, Andy Lister, financial advisor with Investors Group. Andy, thanks for the time this afternoon. Hi, Jamie. You're very welcome. All right. So so let's get down to this. What what you know? How are people doing this? What 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 exactly is this? Um, Rent in the city, own in small towns. Thing.
2: Well, you know, it, it, it it's definitely a function of affordability, as as we know, uh, as you mentioned. You know, the, the the prices in Toronto and the major centers have gone up so much that uh, you know the opportunity to buy a home in in the city is is just been so difficult and out of the reach for the average person, or you end up with a condo that's just so small, it's it's probably just doesn't fit your your lifestyle and so this is sort of a new trend that people are considering as an alternative
1: all right so how does it work
2: well, the the thought process would be that if you've got uh the ability to buy a home in outside of the city, then uh you've done that and you're renting it out and at the same time you're renting a place in the city for for so you can still access your work. And right. uh in many cases you're hoping that the rent that you can charge for your place in the country Uh, covers all of your expenses so that that property is sort of looking after itself. And your only real monthly cost then would be your ongoing rent for your place in the city.
1: Right. And is is
2: this a bit risky? Well, you know, I think that um, what we've seen in the past is that uh, real estate prices in the recent years, of course, has done nothing but gone up, and that's certainly something that becomes you know, you think you get sort of familiar or comfortable with that and we're, we sort of forget that the opposite can happen too, where things begin to flatten out or, in fact, go down in, in price. And just I was listening to your comments as we were coming on the air there, and I was I was actually golfing on the weekend with, uh, with a real estate agent, and we were talking about uh, the number of listings and the activity that's going on. And it was interesting to me that he described it as literally it has fallen off the cliff in, oh. terms, of, in terms of activities. So the activity has really well. You, you, it was uh, one stat that he uh, told me was that uh, that in Hamilton after the announcements of the changes to the lending requirements that the Ontario government put into place and home purchases that. In that week, there were the single most listings went on the Hamilton market. 200 listings in one day showed up as people were trying to jump on the bandwagon before all of these uh, changes took effect. And uh, so we certainly see a lot of inventory, and closing has now... uh, In fact, some of the prices that have started to come down a bit in terms of pricing... We're seeing uh, vendors and buyers are actually trying to renegotiate, you know, 25 grand off of the price that they originally had, or there's contingencies in terms of I can't buy mine until I buy yours yours until I sell mine, and they're asking for extensions. So we've certainly seen a real shift, in my opinion, from uh, what was a real Seller's market to at least a balanced or maybe a tilt towards the buyer's market right now.
1: And and again, um, the thinking is that because of the the rule changes that the government put in place, that it's it's cooled. That's some of the thinking. Exactly. Is is there yeah. anything else that is factoring into that at all?
2: Well, and then on top of that, we had uh, we had a small interest rate increase right. recently, and uh, the prospect of another rate increase before the end of the year, and uh, that often pushes people off the fence they've been thinking about it, and it also uh, reduces the affordability a bit as well when you're thinking about what you're going to offer and what you can afford to pay for a home as well. But, you know, I think that those, you know, it seems like an evolution as the market and the GTA has become so expensive. It's pushing that new homeowner out of the market or out into the further out into the marketplace, whether it's Guelph, whether it's Brantford, whether it's Grimsby and even Hamilton as well. So that, uh, you know, I think that. Marketplace still has room for more stability and more growth. I think it's the GTA that is really feeling this sort of stall and, the, and in terms of a flattening of prices right now as well.
1: So, if we use, uh, let's use Toronto as an as an example. We'll we'll say because there's there's a, you know there's a an, an item uh, in the print media that we picked up. Uh, You use an example of a of a woman who's working in Toronto, has her job and her life in Toronto. She can't afford to buy a home in Toronto, Uh, um, so she buys a home in Hamilton. Yes, and she rents that out to somebody um, to in a way that she can cover the cost of the mortgage on the home in Hamilton and her rent for whatever accommodation she's chosen in downtown toronto is that how that works
2: well you i think theoretically got, theoretically that that it would be the ideal scenario and um and i think what also the trend was was indicating that that the home in hamilton would be certainly covered by the rental right. uh the rental income uh and that probably left in a perfect world that we might be able to cover your place in Toronto too, but I think
1: a portion in, in, of it, maybe
2: in, in, a portion of it in reality, probably they're still, uh, shelling out money on a monthly basis to cover their rent in Toronto. And, and it's interesting because, you know, it, it's, it's not easy to find uh, rent. I know, um, recently talking to a client who, uh, whose daughter was in getting a place in Toronto in in the downtown area in a condominium, one bedroom condominium, uh, without a parking spot, is about $1,700 a month. To rent? To rent.
1: Wow. <laughs> you heard so, the silence there from the host. <laughs> I was a little shocked there, Andy.
2: One bedroom, it's about, uh, I think it was about 700 square feet or something like that, so with no parking.
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, and you know, the the, the the argument, you know, many years ago used to be, um, you don't, why rent, when you can, you know, uh, you should buy because right. because uh, you're burning money if you're renting. You gain equity if you're an owner, right? That's a, yeah, absolutely. And and that uh, that philosophy hasn't changed. That's a that's a staple of investment. But um, there's something else that I've I've heard about when it comes. You you brought up young people, so let's talk about young people for a second. Yes. Uh, that young people aren't as enamored with the idea of home ownership as previous generations were that they they really are more satisfied to have smaller spaces to live in because they want to spend their money on experiences versus things and big boxes like houses
2: yes and i and i think there's a lot of truth in that um but i i think there's also a trend where as uh as a young person today, they're very aware of what's been happening in the real estate market. They're aware about how difficult it is from an affordability standpoint. So I think part of that, they've sort of resolved themselves that the fact that maybe we just can't even get into the real estate market. So the alternative is, yes, we'll rent and we'll continue to uh, enjoy our lifestyle because we're not, putting all this money into a home. But on the other hand, though, I think there is a a large uh, interest and demand by young people, and this is pushing out, though, into Burlington, Hamilton, Caledonia, Grimsby, and certainly as public transit becomes available, uh, Guelph, Kitchener. Those become more of an option in terms of still buying a home, and i think i still hear that in terms of a trend where young people are motivated to buy a home it does come down they don't want to be house poor right and that's that is something that uh is it's a slippery slope you know you want to have everything and anything you can get And as I've counseled, um, you know, the sons and daughters of my clients, I've said, you know what, most of us started off with something very, very basic, something that we were prepared to put in a bit of sweat equity. And if we had to do some work ourselves, we would. And uh, we built up our equity over time between paying it down. And in many cases, uh, a young couple will also include, look for something that has a rental opportunity where they may be able to rent out um, space in their home, rent out a basement, rent out uh, to, to, to help offset or right. cover some of the costs right. as well. And that just gives them one more opportunity to maybe get into the market where they may not have been able to in the past. But many on the other hand, there's a lot of young people who want to start and have it all at the very beginning, the, the new home with the granite yeah. countertops and everything that's done and, uh, and ready to go as well.
1: I want to switch gears uh, off off of this uh, story a little bit and and talk about um, investment, uh, real estate investment in in terms of things like cottages. I I just spent a week up at Sauble Beach, and I Mm -hmm. and again I noticed that. Excuse me, I noticed that again with what we've been discussing, there are an increased number of listings of cottage properties that are that are for sale. In fact, there were quite a few uh, that were listed in. in the Sauble Beach area, which is part of uh, the Bruce Peninsula, and is thought to be about half the cost of cottage real estate in Muskoka. Right. Um if if my calculations are correct or I'm yeah. reading correctly. Um so let's talk about that is for somebody that's established, somebody that is um you know that owns a home that might have a little bit of equity, maybe they're that person who's got as you said, you know, has all the bells and whistles on the big home with the the granite countertops and all of that but is established in their employment, maybe in their 40s or, or early 50s. investing money in a cottage property for the purpose of primarily renting it out and maybe saving back a couple of weeks a year for the family to enjoy. Is that a good move? You
2: know, I think that that's a, I I think about cottages as a lifestyle decision as opposed to an investment decision. And I find that most people that, um, that own a cottage or bought a cottage have done it because of the memories that it's created and the and and a lifestyle that they want to enjoy, as opposed to just an investment. They're they're certainly happy and excited about how their cottage property has increased in value. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And in many cases, uh, renting it has been an a, an ideal scenario too to offset some of the costs, property taxes, etc., to uh, to keep them uh, keep the cottage basically maintained and 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 the ownership and it's it is something that somebody has to weigh out the issues around how many months of the year can I actually use it right. how how is that capital going to be tied up and if I didn't make money on this property is it something that I'm still enjoying I'm using it and is it part of our lifestyle and it's creating memories for us. And that's the nice thing about a cottage property is that it's not just an investment. It is something where we do create those memories. And there's a legacy in In many cases. People want to figure out how to pass that cottage on to the next generation. And uh, so it, it's... But you're right. I think there's a. There's also the same phenomenon where if you look at a Muskoka cottage and you look at a Sobble Beach cottage and the value you get for the price it's a lot more attractive and it's drawing people from that area over to the Sauble Beach area yeah. and that's where a lot of the demand has come from as well
1: but it's funny it's funny because I hadn't been up there in about 13 years and I love I love Sable Beach I love Muskoka too uh, but I hadn't been there in a long long time and it, what surprised me was how much uh, uh, investment I had I was witness to when it mm, came to yeah. the quality of of these cottages they're not cottages anymore they're <laughs> they're mansions like they, they are they have all the state of the art stuff in them they are like fully landscaped and and hardscaped and they are um, like people have spent a lot of money up there taking. You know the old shacks that we used to, you know, hang out in that created a lot of memories and, and added onto them and created these Taj Mahals. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so you, you look at that and you, and you see those listed and I think some of them were listed in the you know six hundred seven hundred thousand dollar range yeah. and you and you think, boy, you got to rent that out a lot to just to pay for it, like to, to make it oh. work.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, and the phenomena and the trend that uh, that I am seeing a lot in terms of clients as they begin to think about their retirement and what that retirement lifestyle is going to look like, uh, they've said to me, "Listen, how would it work out if I was able to sell my house in the city?" and it's appreciated in value. I've got a lot of equity, or I own it outright. If I took a million dollars, let's say, if I was able to sell my property, mm-hmm. and now I'm thinking, I still want to have a place in the city, so I'm going to buy a condominium for 250000 or 300000 and then I'm going to take my seven hundred grand, and I'm going to go to Port Elgin, or I'm going to go up to Grand Bend, and I'm going to buy a property there. That's my summer lifestyle, and I'm going to have my condo in the city for winter. Or maybe, perhaps, I'm going to rent down in Florida, someplace warm, and get get out of the, get out of the Canadian winter. Yeah,
1: I, I like the, the I like the uh, I like the scenario you're creating for me here. Go right ahead. Yeah, so now, <laughs> keep going. Now you've now you got a
2: you got a get get free cottage up in, up on the lake, and you've right. got a little place in the city to maintain connections and and the people that you know here. And then uh, a lifestyle that might include someplace in the south for part of the winter as well, and uh, but that's so that we're seeing where where it's actually driving the market are retirees determining a new lifestyle for themselves that
1: includes
2: um, a cottage property as part of that lifestyle.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I hear (laughs) I hear that. It's. I also think, man, it could be you could be a little isolated up there in the winter time with those ten foot snowbanks and the yeah, roads that you can't pass, you know, I don't know. yeah, these are not, yeah, I don't think these are
2: winter. I mean, I know many of them are uh, <laughs> winterized and and uh, but but what because of the trend of the retirees, we're seeing more and more activities and a lifestyle around that particular yeah. demographic, and many of these communities are uh, are are built up. All kinds of infrastructure and uh, programs and things to do for people in the summer that are you know fifty plus or sixty plus yeah. and and still enjoying life
1: and and yeah. just just quickly before we let you go the big you know the big um, uh, shift of of wealth from the baby boomers down to the next generation have, have we started to see that happening Andy. Yeah,
2: we deal a lot with, um, you know, the estate transfers. It's, it's definitely happening. And, uh, you know, we know that there's certainly a trend happening with the fact that our parents are living longer. And, um, and in many cases, they are... Using some of their resources to be able to maintain their lifestyle and their their health care into into their age elder, older age and many people living past a hundred and it's uh, and it costs money for us to be looked after. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, um, you know, there's many many thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars that are being transferred to the next generation and uh, and in in. I think that is sort of also driving part of the real estate market as well, as people are thinking about how can I afford to either buy a home or how could I afford to buy a cottage. Maybe this is going to be part of our lifestyle uh, through an inheritance. Never count on it, but it's always a great bonus when it comes in.
1: All right, Andy Lister, Andy Lister, financial advisor with the Investors Group. Uh, always a pleasure to chat with you, sir. Thanks Thank you very for- much, Jamie. All right, you have a great day. Take care. You too. Right. Bye. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Our topic at hand is that Health Canada and advertisers are arguing over how to market products to kids. Uh, You know, there's been a debate going on about this forever and a day, and I go back to uh, the 1970s when, uh, as a kid growing up, I watched TV and saw the fancy, colorful Ads for McDonald's, you know, with Ronald McDonald and the the uh, all the other characters, the McDonald Land characters, and um, you know that was the thing. We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go, mom, dad, you know, and that's the idea, right? Sell it to the kids, get the kids to bug mom and dad. Well, Health Canada is uh, proposing restrictions on TV ads that would almost limit uh the, that would almost eliminate the ads online as well joining us on the line to talk about it is Rosie Schwartz a registered dietitian nationally best selling author of the enlightened eater's whole foods guide and Rosie uh, has a website rosieschwartz.com Rosie welcome to the program today thank you Jamie all right so let's uh let's 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 get into it um, uh, first of all uh, i don't think there are many people who would say it's a good thing to sell kids things that are unhealthy, would they? I mean, common sense would dictate um,
3: that. Common sense would, but there are many people, and I think they're involved in the food industry, who um, those are the people that do want to sell these items to kids, and they want to market them to kids. But people who are looking at it from the perspective of health of children and um, you know, parents, they, uh, they are, I believe, in agreement.
1: Yeah, and big food and big media have a lot of political power. And so uh, it's interesting that we've got a government agency like Health Canada now saying, okay, maybe we better take another look at this. Do you think that they're just paying that lip service, though?
3: To be honest with you, um, when I see the legislation come through and it's actually written and it's passed, then I will believe it. Right. I've seen where, where governments say, for example, even in Ontario, that you know we were going to have menu labeling um, at chain restaurants, which included um, calories and sodium. They dropped the sodium. They were all in favor of the sodium. Somehow there was pressure; there it was dropped. The Health Canada, the federal government, in terms of nutritional labeling, said. Consumers, Canadians have asked for information on added sugars. We want to put it on the label so that people can see what um which foods have how much added in the way of added sugars and the government proposed this it got dropped,
1: yeah, and, and yeah. so
3: i i I'm somewhat of a skeptic i I would love to see that the government actually follows through. Um, I think input is really important um, but it hasn't always resulted in what it should
1: right okay so let's 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 assume then that we can expect not <laughs> sort of sort of an optimal outcome for any look into changing the way big food advertises to our children um, we still have the ability as parents to control what our children eat and drink.
3: Oh, we have we have more than the ability; we have the the obligation. Right. I think. I mean, we we do, but it it makes it it makes life much easier for parents if their kids aren't the subject of, um, of marketing. Right. In right. In Quebec, they've had this ban in place for children under thirteen for decades. And their eating is very different. The kids don't see um, advertising for fast food. And so they're not, they're not trying to get those free, free toys that come with, you mm-hmm. know, the current promotion. I mean, so that parents can do this, but we, we're seeing what's happening to our children. This, the, the this generation of children may be the first to um not outlive their parents their their um children there's a high rate of obesity. kids are eating too much sodium they're eating too much sugar and parents need help to 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 rescue their children from from all these foods
1: Rosie where do you see? Um, the 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 biggest problem with uh, food advertising uh, to children is it in the breakfast cereals is it in the soda pops where is it
3: oh it's I think it's in both I think it's the breakfast cereals are a huge one um, and that you know I mean kids are eating a lot of sugar and, you know, in breakfast cereals. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't know anymore because, because the government have, will not put added sugars on the label. But, um, but soft, drinks, soft drinks probably are the biggest one. Soft drinks and even, even fruit juices.
1: Right. That's, a, that's been a, a, a thing that parents uh, in the past have said, well, I'm not giving them um, a cola, I'm giving them uh, orange juice or I'm giving them uh, cranberry juice. Hugely loaded with uh, with sugar.
3: Yes, and it's not the same as eating a whole fruit. It doesn't have the fiber. It doesn't have the same nutrients. Now, part of that was our old food guide. Our old food guide did consider juice to be a serving of, of fruit. And the research is showing that liquid liquid sugar is a problem, and it
1: is contributing to the the
3: really high rate
1: of obesity in kids. And we're talking about things like high fructose corn syrup, and, of course, then you get into the whole corn industry, right, and the farmers, and everybody's got to stay alive. And, and again, you get into the politics of the thing and, and how... Um, big food is you, you know you don't know if the tails wagging the dog when it comes to to big food in government, do you? Absolutely and agriculture you're right you
3: mentioned corn. yeah I mean so so the the issue is that um, we need to look at health and how much is how much um, is our health costing us the you know it's billions in terms of of poor diet yes and but besides that kids kids need to know what healthy eating is all about and when you get a promotion I still remember my my daughter when she was i think 3 or 4 years old coming in and running in and saying mommy mommy good news and the particular <laughs> cereal that um I wouldn't let her get she said they said it's part of a balanced breakfast <laughs> yes and it was yeah. you know I think she was 3 or 4 and it was um let me tell you about marketing one o one and but the thing is is that parents shouldn 't have to fight all this and and kids are seeing it online they 're seeing it at sporting events they they you know and and sometimes it 's confusing for parents do kids do kids need sports drinks um, should kids be finding out about should they be um hearing about energy drinks? kids need to be protected and they need to be nurtured with healthy food, and then when they're adults, they can make decisions. And and the thing is, right. that's when I say parents have an obligation. They are the gatekeepers. And so sometimes parents will be unpopular for their choices. I mean, my kids, sometimes I remember when they were young, they would say, it's no fair. Why can't you be a normal mother? Why do we have to have a dietitian as a mother? Right. <laughs> and, right. and, well, the things that they complained about, they complained about whole grain breads. They complained about, you know, not having sugar cereals. And, um, and then what happened was, what do they eat now? As adults, they eat whole grain breads. They don't eat sugar cereals, and so if we if we give the kids a healthy foundation, then when they're older and they're adults, then they will continue on that same path.
1: Yeah, that um, th- that makes a lot of sense. That you know, you've got you've also got a couple of generations of parents now. Um, the 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 ones that have really young kids are. Our kids were kids themselves in the early 90s and so you've got a couple of generations of of kids that were absolutely inundated with this kind of marketing with this kind of kind of kind of advertising so those adults have developed bad habits of their own and you you know they're just passing some of that on to their kids sometimes even though they know better
3: absolutely and and the other thing is is that i mean in in many in many families i mean there may be sing- you know single parent families the um or or parents working outside the home and there's not a lot of time there's not a lot there's there's not as much energy towards you know fighting your kids when you go shopping and oh can we buy this can we buy this and so if if they if they don't see it on t v if they don't see it Advertise in different places or online, then um, then they're not going to be asking.
1: Every that. little bit helps, right, Rosie? I mean, let's you know, we're not. Nobody's saying that this is the great panacea. If we if we eliminate this type of advertising to children, it's it's a it's certainly a significant would be a significant part of helping move us in the right direction. As you already pointed out, there's lots of evidence in Quebec that it's that it works it's been working there for for decades. Yeah. Um so we need to look to that as the example and, and enhance it. It's not everything, but it's certainly something significant if we were to get serious about it.
3: Exactly. And part of the thing, I mean, an obligation that we have as parents is also teaching kids how to eat some of these foods, how to incorporate them. <laughs> So that they know that maybe maybe they're treats or maybe they're once-in-a-while foods, but they're not part of
1: everyday Right. Living. How we classify them as and brand them within the context of proper nutrition is part of a conversation, as you point out, that needs to be had between parents and their kids. Right. But parents should have control
3: of that conversation. Yeah. But if they're told that this is a wonderful item, you need to buy it, then... Um, and the parents are not in control.
1: The other element of this, I, I laugh when when I hear the advertising industry. I, I run a little ad agency myself, so I'm in the advertising yeah. business. But I laugh when I hear the ad, uh, advertising agency and big food say things like, "Well, if you if you did this, it would hurt us so much that we wouldn't be able to afford to to support." Um, Timbit soccer for example or what you know whatever these youth programs and and so on and so forth you know the big cereal company's going to pull out of that you know the the only reason they'd be pulling out it, it's not a question of affordability the only reason they'd pull out of programs like that is because they wouldn't be able to directly advertise on the shirts and on the brochures and on the soccer balls their brand name exactly um, you know give me a break it's yeah. it's you know that's why they do it they don't do it because um, it's a good healthy thing to do. They do it to get something in return. Exactly. You know, so let's and, call it what it is.
3: And we and,
1: and we'll find the money somewhere else.
3: And and kids we can see it in what's happening. Kids are developing um type 2 diabetes. It yeah. used to be called adult onset diabetes. That's right. Yeah. It's it's now no longer called adult onset because teenagers are developing diabetes. So developing high blood pressure, so diseases that we used to see later in life are, are
1: now hitting kids. And I think you touched on, that's a very important point, and you touched on it earlier. This generation could be, and is likely to be, the first generation that might not... Uh, live uh, outlive its its parents like can you imagine if you're a parent now listening to our conversation if you if if you if all of what we've said is not motivating you enough to try to make some changes think of this would you prefer to see your child die before you would that I think when you put it in those kinds of terms a child that develops obesity gets health problems so on and so forth and and potentially passes away before you that's every parent's nightmare It doesn't matter what age that that occurs it, it, right?
3: is, it is very scary, and we need to make changes here in Canada.
1: Yeah. Um, well, one last thing. You're a registered dietitian, so I, I want to leave everybody on, on a somewhat of an optimistic note here. A few tips on getting... Uh, for parents to get kids past the picky eating thing you know parents give up a kid says i don't like broccoli i'm not going to eat this and they they do it a couple of times and you give up as a parent you say well okay i guess i'll give them more french fries because i don't want them to be hungry Um, you know give us a couple of tips on getting past that picky eating thing okay number one never give up
3: okay okay
1: Um, but there are a few things
3: if um... parents need to know that kids n- sometimes need to taste a food, or even adults need to taste a food, 20 times to, in order to get past their aversion to it. So if something like broccoli, if it has a bitter taste, um, tasting it 20 times does show that it changes whether a child will, disli- will like it or dislike it. Okay. If they've tasted it 20 times, so a forkful getting them to taste a forkful and saying, you know what, it's on, the, it's on the table. You don't have to eat that full portion of broccoli, but you have to have a, a forkful. And they do that 20 times. They will become broccoli eaters.
1: Interesting.
3: Now, also getting kids involved in cooking. If kids are, are choosing the recipes, if, you know, you start at a really young age, a small child, can help to toss a salad or stir a bowl um, that contains um, whatever mixture shaking a salad dressing and then saying that salad tasted so amazing because little johnny um, helped to make the salad dressing kids not only when they are involved in, in cooking not only will they eat what they've prepared they will expect everybody else at the table to eat it.
1: It's uh, it's great information, uh, great conversation. As always, Rosie Schwartz, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author of the Enlightened Eater's Whole Foods Guide, rosieschwartz.com. Thanks so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. Take Thank care. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson
2: Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.